This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast, number 62, Moving. I'm Hal Hammonds, and I am a Citizen of Heaven, and your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. Here's what I have for you this week. I've been preaching about last word speeches in the Bible. It may not be important to make them count, but you might as well try. I've been reading Nehemiah. At the end of the work, we will be remembered for something. Let it be for good. I've been hearing a new preacher will carry on after we've gone. And really, that makes a lot less difference than you might think. I've been playing Amerigo. A new world means new challenges and opportunities. Predictability can be nice, but it's probably overrated. Let's start with what I've been preaching. Many or most of you may be aware that the Hammonds family is in the process of moving to Georgetown, Texas. But in fact, we're scheduled to move into our new house on the day this episode drops. It is a jarring experience to move. Not entirely pleasant. We're excited about it. We're thrilled at the opportunity, but we will very, very much miss the brethren that we are leaving behind here. And when we made the decision to leave, immediately I started thinking, because that's the way I work, about what I would say in my final days and especially in my final sermon. And my thoughts drifted to the famous last words of various Bible characters. And I thought maybe I could put some kind of thoughts together with regard to that. And I wonder what went through the mind of people like Joseph, for instance, in Genesis chapter 50, verse 24, where he says, God will surely take care of you to his family. I believe that he believed that. Uh, did it make a difference in people's lives? Did it assure them of, give them confidence for the coming years? I don't know. And there's no way of knowing. Joseph, I'm sure, didn't know. But he wanted to give them that last assurance there, that there is a plan for you, that God loves you, and that God has a plan for you, and that God is committed to that plan. That's an important message for the people of God to hear, not just in Joseph's time, but at all times. Likewise, in Deuteronomy 30, uh, 32, verse 47, where Moses tells the people there, really the whole book of Deuteronomy is famous last words, but especially this particular phrase jumped to my mind. This is your life, he says, not in a Monty Hall kind of way, but this is your life. This is what it's all about. Everything in your life is about this, making this choice to serve God. He calls it choosing between life and death, the previous chapter. But it's, it's like deciding whether you're going to breathe or not. It is the, it's not just the biggest choice of your life. It's really the only choice of your life because none of the rest of it makes any difference. So when you're contemplating going into this new world, this new realm, this new chapter in your life, whatever that chapter may be, whatever page you may be turning, turn it in favor of God. Find a way to live for God. There's no choice that compares to this one. No matter how many good choices you make in your life, you're never going to make up for the one bad choice that you make if this is that one bad choice. I thought about Joshua, of course, maybe the first one I thought of, Joshua 24, verse 15, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And that's usually where we cut the quote off. But we go on in Joshua 24 to see the, the reaction of the people. They don't wait around to make a choice. We'll make a choice now. We will serve the Lord. And Joshua says, no, you won't. You won't do it. Yes, we absolutely will. And Joshua says, then your own words are going to be testimony against you. He says, simply saying we will serve the Lord is not good enough. We have to be prepared to put wheels in motion to actually make this happen. 
saying Lord, Lord, as Jesus says in Matthew 7, 21, is not good enough. We have to actually do these things. We have to plan to actually implement these interesting ideas, these positive ideas, the, the ones that the preacher is really excited about. We need to actually work toward that goal, not just satisfy ourselves with having made a good choice in concept, as it were. I, I love Peter's words in 2 Peter 3, verse 18. And these are not his last words, of course, but the last ones we get and probably the last ones that his readers got from him. He tells them to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's how we go about fulfilling these other things, by increasing our faith, by increasing our commitment to God. We grow in grace and knowledge by digging deeper into our relationship with God, by fortifying it, by finding ways to, to build ourselves up and build others as well. If we remain stagnant, then that faith will deteriorate. But as he says in, in the first chapter, and again in the in the third chapter, the idea of being diligent to pursue these things. I love that word diligent in the New American Standard Bible. Make a point of doing this. In the first chapter, it's in the context of the, the graces, the Christian graces that we sometimes talk about, faith and, and virtue and knowledge, temperance, patience, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. These things need to be in you and abound, and they're not going to get there by accident. You have to diligently pursue these things. And if you do, the entrance into the eternal kingdom will be abundantly supplied to you, he tells us. And finally, the, the last words of the last words are the words of John, of course, in Revelation 22, verse 21, or verse 20. Uh, Amen, come Lord Jesus. In the context of Jesus promising to come in short order to deliver his people, to help his people through these difficult times. Whether we're talking about the immediate problems of the first century Christians, whether we're talking about similar problems that we ourselves wrestle with, whether we're talking about humanity at large that struggles on planet Earth, waiting for something greater. Jesus is there for us, and he is coming for us quicker than we realize. Before you know it, Jesus will be here to lift you up. And the more you feel his presence with you now, the more confidence you have in him and his return now, the easier it's going to be for you to wait for that time. So hopefully these words can, can build up my brethren here. Hopefully they can build you up also. And if there's never another word that I offer to, a never, to another living soul, let them be these words. Amen. Come Lord Jesus. Anyway, that's what I've been preaching. This is what I've been reading. The Brethren E.D. still will testify to my love of the book of Nehemiah. I've called it one of my favorite books any number of times. Of course, they'll also testify I've said that about a large number of books. Maybe not all 66 of them, but pretty close. But Nehemiah is special, and it's, it's different. Uh, Nehemiah reads very much like a man who is defending his, himself, defending his actions, and especially defending himself toward God. At least four occasions in the book, he refers to this prayer of his, remember me, oh my God, for good, or words to that effect. He wants to be remembered for the stand that he took, the choices that he made, the work that he engaged in, the, the sermons that he preached to build the people up. And we're all going to be remembered, whether we ask for it or not. God, of course, is going to remember us. We hope and pray that he remembers us for good. We hope and pray that our brethren will remember us for good, that our children, our spouses, our neighbors will remember us for good. I want to be remembered for good also, like Nehemiah did. I want to be remembered as someone who told the truth in all situations. And, and I mean, especially negative truth. Uh, anybody can tell 
general truth, and pretty much everybody loves telling positive truth. Everybody likes delivering good news. The trick is delivering bad news and delivering it in such a way as to be received and to encourage people to deal with it. That's what he does when he arrives on the scene in Jerusalem. In chapter 2, verse 17, he tells them about the bad situation that we're in. He's not going to sugarcoat things. These are bad situations. Our walls are crumbling. We're barely a nation. Our enemies have us at their disposal, essentially. We're existing because they're choosing to allow it to happen. We need to defend ourselves. We need to be strong instead of being weak. And he urged the people to do exactly that. It wasn't necessarily an easy sermon to preach or an easy sermon to listen to, but it was a necessary sermon in that situation. I want to be remembered for that. I want to be remembered as someone who spoke the negative truth, the hard truth. And and if that comes across sounding like the church in Pensacola was on death's door until the Hammondses showed up, I apologize. That's not the point at all. But every situation has negatives. Every situation has problems, and they need to be addressed. That's the role of the preacher, to be the watchman that Ezekiel talks about in Ezekiel chapter 3, that, or that God speaks of anyway, to Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 3. Uh, it's our task to sound the alarm. It's our task to, to tell the truth and to motivate people to change and hopefully show them a path to change. I want to be remembered as someone who loved the children, who loved the next generation, enough to, again, speak the truth and act on their behalf. Lots of parents, for instance, who claim to love their children seem to be doing everything in the world to pave the path to hell for their children. I don't understand that. I refuse to do that. It may be easier in the short term to just kind of let things go, but I care too much about people to allow that to happen. Children, their parents, their grandparents, all of the above. But I especially took note of the way that, that sons and daughters are referred to in Nehemiah chapter 4 and verse 12. Do not be afraid of them, that is the enemies. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. This is not just your life. It's generations to come, succeeding generations. When we're taking stands for God's truth, when we are defending the gospel, we, we are pushing away false doctrine and false teachers, when we are curing bad habits and addressing bad habits and trying to get the best out of people, it's not just that we're cranky. It's just not just that we are difficult to please. It's that we have a profound love for our brothers and sisters in Christ, a profound love for their children to such an extent that we are willing and eager, in fact, to insert ourselves into their lives in, in a tactful way, certainly, in a loving way, and in a diplomatic way. I'm certainly not volunteering to parent somebody else's children. But if I can say something or do something that will encourage good habits, and if I have to fight the parents to do it, I want to be known for doing that, not for being rude, but for being loving and encouraging and supportive and trying to get people to seek God in their life, seek Jesus and his values, his principles in their life. I want to be remembered for believing in, my, in the people of God. And I especially want to say this in light of what I just said here. I don't want to sound like this is some kind of lost cause, that I am fighting the entire church or whatever. That's not the case. I don't believe that to be the case. Not even in my darkest moments do I believe that to be the case. I believe in my brethren. I believe that souls are seeking God, that they are reading the Bible, that they are trusting in its power to save. They're trusting in its power to transform their lives. 
It may not be working all that well for them in any given moment. It may not be working all that well for me. But we love believes all things. And if we truly love our brethren, if we truly believe that they are reading the same book that we're reading, we have confidence that God is working things in their lives that we may not, may not be able to see, but that are real and that are going to happen. Fight for them. Fight for the truth. The text says that, that the wall was built to half its height after Nehemiah gave them this encouragement because the people had a mind to work. And we're told later on, that's not the end of the story. In chapter 6, in verse 15, the wall was built in 52 days. A remarkable achievement because people wanted to do the work. They may not have been mindful to do the work until Nehemiah showed up, but Nehemiah did not create a desire to do the right thing. He simply put a burr under their saddle, as it were. God's people want to do the right thing, and we need to be giving them excuses and opportunities to do the right thing. Like Haggai and Zechariah showing up and saying, build the temple. Like Nehemiah showing up and saying, build the wall. Likewise, preachers show up in a location, whether it's Pensacola or, or Mars, and say, the people of God owe it to God. They owe it to themselves. They owe it to their neighbors to stand up for what's right. So let's go out and do that. Be the kind of Christian that you know you want to be, that God wants you to be. And certainly that I want you to be. If we can find that motivation in ourselves and build it in others, we can achieve great things in our lives and great things in the lives of the people of God, like Nehemiah did, like Joshua did, like Elijah did, like so many great people of the, of the Old and New Testament, like people that we've known in the past. That's what our legacy should be. That's what we should be remembered for, that we served God, that we encouraged other people to serve God as well. Let that be put on our tombstone. Remember me, oh my God, for good. Anyway, that's what I've been reading. This is what I've been hearing. Well, supposedly the church here in Pensacola is not going to close up shop when we leave town. What do you know? That's a good thing, of course. We, uh, we talk all the time about not being indispensable, that no Christian is indispensable, and certainly no preacher is indispensable. I like to think that we're being sincere with that. It's certainly true. The Bible teaches it over and over again. If there's any lesson in humility that, that should be learned, it should be that one. I, I'll say something here, and it may get, may get me kicked out of the preacher's union if we had a preacher's union. But this is the fact of the matter. The actual identity of the person who is in any given pulpit is not nearly as important as people think it is. The things the preacher does, of course, very important. But how much skill he has, how he presents himself, how good his PowerPoint presentations are, that sort of thing personality quirks, whether he's a friendly guy or a funny guy or has a lot of interesting stories to tell, whether he preaches for 30 minutes or 40 minutes or 50 minutes, none of that really makes any difference. Uh, a preacher's character matters. A preacher's knowledge of the Bible matters. But there are a lot of men who have that quality. 
a lot of good men who do good work and who would do good work regardless of where they happen to be in any given moment. And if they happen to leave, as all of us will, one way or the other, in a car or in a box, we're going to leave. Somebody else come in and do the same kind of work and do the same kind of effectual work if they are being led by the same Holy Spirit that was leading the first man. That's a very important lesson for us to to emphasize, I think, especially preachers who, despite our best efforts, we can feel like we are somehow or another indispensable or or get most of the credit for the solutions or the successes or whatever. Quarterbacks and preachers are a lot alike as far as that goes. They tend to get far more credit than they deserve, far more blame than they deserve. A preacher is one element of the equation. Maybe more prominent than others, but not really any more important. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, where the, the apostle gives us there the various aspects of the Spirit moving among people, the people of God. Some were given as as prophet, apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers, all of which were intended for the equipping of the saints for the work of service. Whoever you happen to be in that echelon, wherever you happen to be on that ladder, if you want to look at it that way, at the very top, at the very bottom, it doesn't make any difference. It's all about the work. It's all about accomplishing God's purposes in a local congregation. The Corinthians were struggling with that, 1 Corinthians tells us. Paul had gone and preached the gospel initially there in Corinth and stayed about three years and no doubt had done great work. And some of the people who were reading his letter, and his second letter also, that he had written, no doubt that they owed their salvation to the work that Paul had done in cooperation with others. He alludes to a few of them by name. And then Paul left, as preachers will do. And evidently, judging from what we read in chapter 1, the Apostle Peter came and preached to them for a while. Exactly how long or how many times or how how permanent that arrangement was or semi-permanent, the text doesn't say. But they became acquainted with Peter anyway and attached a great deal of importance to his work. And then Apollos came at some point, maybe before or after Peter. We don't know a lot of the details. And Apollos is well known as being a very oratorical type from what we read in the book of Acts. No doubt he was a very effective speaker, a very effective communicator. Paul kind of half jokes at his own expense, talking about how he stumbles over his words. Maybe that was true. Maybe he quite likely, in fact, suffered in comparison with Apollos, who apparently was quite eloquent in his his oratory. But, you know, they're all workers. And as he says in chapter 3, verse 7, I was the one who planted in, in Apollos water, but God was the one who was causing the growth. It's all about what God is accomplishing in the lives of people. And and one person may be holding a pulpit up on a rostrum somewhere, but he doesn't get the credit, or shouldn't get the credit at least. Matthew chapter 5, and verse 16, after having said that we are lights in the world, uh, and that's not just preachers, by the way, that's all of us. We are to go out and shine our light in the world so that men may see our good works and do what? And glorify God who is in heaven. God gets the credit. God gets the glory. In fact, in the next chapter, he goes on to criticize people who are using spiritual things, spiritual relationships to glorify themselves, to lift themselves up, broadening their phylacteries and such things as that. We owe the people of God more than that. We owe ourselves more than that, and we owe God more than that. 
whatever we do, whoever we happen to be, let's not think so highly of ourselves to think that we are not replaceable because we are. And one day we will be replaced. Anyway, that's what I've been hearing. If you want to stop listening at this point and go your way, I hope you've found the message instructive, inspiring, and most of all, faithful to God's word. Please don't forget to like, rate, share, subscribe, and follow. But if you stick around for a few more minutes, I would like to share with you a way to amuse yourself in a wholesome manner while waiting here in Satan's world, and perhaps pick up a spiritual point or two in the process. This is what I've been playing. If you talk to board game aficionados about the game Amerigo, they're likely to say words to the effect of, oh, that's the game with the cube tower, right? And the answer is yes, it's the game with the cube tower, at least one game with the cube tower. And I love me a good cube tower. We'll talk about that, what a cube tower is and what purpose it serves in the game in a second. But first of all, Amerigo is a game about discovering the new world, which was not named Columbia. It was named America. There's been some question about that. The reason is Columbus, pretty much to his dying day, thought that he had not discovered anything except a westward path to the Far East. It was Amerigo Vespucci who popularized the notion that this was, in fact, a brand new continent, a brand new ocean that Europeans had never known about before this. And because of that, because he's the one that drew the original maps, he's the one who gets an entire hemisphere, essentially, named after himself. And Amerigo the game does a pretty good job, I think, of, encompass, of, of depicting the idea of discovery and going into a new world. And basically, there's a frame that's given there, and the, the tiles come out in random ways. You, you never know exactly what kind of island configuration there's going to be. Are there going to be big islands, small islands, a lot of islands, a few islands? You never know. And some of them are going to have coffee and some of them are going to have a tobacco. And so, there are various products that you can, you can farm and such. And then you have different tasks that you can engage in in those areas. And it's all controlled by this cube tower. There are uh, brown cubes and blue cubes and green cubes, etc., which all uh, allow you to either build something or develop something or harvest something or practice something or, or fight off something, whatever it happens to be. I'm not going to get into the details of it. But you pick up an entire cluster of cubes and you dump them into this cube tower. And the cube tower is designed to let most of the stuff through, but not everything. And the stuff that gets left over that didn't drop all the way through the cube tower may fall out the next round. So it gets increasingly random as the round goes on. If you drop a handful of yellow cubes into the cube tower, you have reason to believe that some yellow cubes are going to come out. But probably not all of them. And probably some that are not yellow cubes. And that sense of randomness is a really good way of explaining the idea of exploration in a way that we as 21st century Americans have no real concept. Even when we are exploring space, because of computers, because of telescopes, because of various scientific advancements that we've had, we have a fairly reasonable idea what's waiting for us out there. We're, we're fuzzy on the details, but we know how many you know, when we're likely to run into a planet, when we're likely to run into a star, etc. It's, it's all mapped out for us already. Life's kind of like that. I, I was remembering the, the words of uh, one of Meg Ryan's characters in that other Meg Ryan and 
Tom Hanks movie, Joe versus the volcano, where she turns to to her her boyfriend and says, "We'll jump and we'll see." That's life. That's that's what life is. It's a, a venture. It's an adventure. And thankfully, we have some advanced knowledge of what we're going to run into. And I've been thinking about this a lot in preparation for moving back to Texas. We know a lot of the people there. We know a lot of the details. We know where we're likely to find good Mexican food and and things of that nature. But built into the system is a certain degree of uncertainty. You never know exactly what you're going to run into. And that is partly scary, but it's also partly exciting. And it certainly encourages us to lean on the things that are known, lean on the things that are sure, that are certain. And that's what the Apostle Paul does when he travels around in the book of Acts, when he goes to different places preaching the same gospel. And it's very important to emphasize that. The, all the critical issues that Paul dealt with that we deal with when we go from place to place, all the critical things remain the same. Nothing really changes. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 4 and following, there is one body and one spirit, just as you are also called, and one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Those seven unities that he talks about there do not change. Circumstances change. Policies change. Personalities change. But the gospel remains the same. The one gospel that is the power of God and salvation to everyone who believes, Romans verse uh, 1, verse 16. Uh, Jude, verse 3, the gospel that was once for all delivered to the saints. If we can focus on that thing that we do know, it makes all of the things that are unknown fall into place, or at least fit a little bit more easily into place. I don't know what exactly America Vespucci knew when he was going out into the world. He had testimony from a very small number of people. He had his own scientific knowledge, such such as it was. He understood the difference between water and land and, and things of that nature. And sometimes that doesn't seem like very much. But when that's all there is, you grab a hold of what there is and, and take advantage of the knowledge that you have. Because the world that we're going to face is going to be a, a terrifying place from time to time. Especially if it's in Texas. So trusting in God, trusting in his will, trusting in his power will help us see through the difficult and the strange and the, the trying times, allowing us to focus on what we know for real. And what we know for real is God, no matter what state you're living in. Anyway, that's what I've been playing. Thank you for listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe if you have not already. Shares, ratings, comments, and questions are always welcome. Feel free to reach out to me on social media with any questions or suggestions, and watch my YouTube channel and our website, www.halhammonds.com, for articles, sermons, and notifications regarding other content. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, the Citizen of Heaven, signing off.